Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. God's Word. First Peter 1 and then 14, 2 to 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's needs, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perceptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word is the good news that was preached to you, a living stone and a holy people. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of reading your holy word. Your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Our loving Father, you've loved us unto blood, and we pray you'll bless this open reading of your word, perhaps one day it will be not allowed, and we take full advantage of this, Lord. We'll shout it from the hilltops, from the pulpit, in the home. God's word will endure everlastingly. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Billy. And good morning. Welcome to Westminster Chapel. Uh, my name's Andy. 
Um, it's good to see you. I've got a main topic today, and uh, you will get the idea of the topic if you can tell me what this next image is. So uh, this might test your ages. What is this next picture? Right, uh, actually, show of hands for people who don't know what that thing is. I'm looking over here for the 18 to 30s group. <laughs> this is a pressure cooker. Pressure cookers work, uh, unsurprisingly, by pressure. So you can make a lovely casserole or a stew or something like that, a spaghetti bolognese in one of these, faster than you would usually because it combines heat with pressure. And it builds up, builds up the pressure inside, cooks your food thoroughly, and at the end, after it's built up to full pressure, you release the pressure valve and open up the steaming hot, wonderful stew. But as a child, I um, lived in a house where my mum refused to update her pressure cooker, so I think she'd had it since the Stone Age. And it was all sorts of things wrong with it, but she kept hold of it. And when this thing, see, to make a good spag bowl, would take maybe 45 minutes to get fully up to pressure, fully cooked, or a beef stew, something like that. But the problem was, our pressure cooker started making noise after 10 minutes. And if you know about pressure cookers, towards the end they're supposed to make certain noises that say that they're building up to pressure, and then a little red dial will pop up. And that tells you that it's ready, you can open it up, you can release the pressure. But from 10 minutes in, there was just this annoying whistling sounds coming from our rattling pressure cooker that would just build and build and get louder and louder. So when I was a kid, I would just shut myself in another room and half expect this thing to explode and my mum to walk in full of shards of metal. <laughs> Thankfully, she never did, but I wasn't responsible for that thing until one day when I was uh, a teenager and it was my job to cook for the family. So she, she was out working, I think, and I was at home cooking with this silly thing. And it was building up, building up. It was about 15 minutes in, and I could not take that noise. It was so annoying. It was getting higher pitched and higher pitched and making me feel more under pressure and more excruciating. And it would build up and build up until 20 minutes in, and I thought, maybe that little red thing's just broken. I'm sure it's meant to be up to pressure by now. This sounds like it's ready. And I just released the pressure valve opened up the pot, it looked hot inside, like it was boiling or whatever, so then later on I was uh, served up this nice beef stew, and my mum, after 20 minutes of chewing the first slab of beef, said, Andrew, did you let this get up to full pressure? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I did. I think the machine might be broken though, because the little red thing didn't pop up. Little did I know, well, I, I did actually know, I knew exactly what I was doing. Next time round, we made it again. The red thing still worked fine. It was the fact that I could not handle that pressure. And I hit the release valve too soon, and we ended up with something that was pretty unsavory, unpalatable. We couldn't really eat the thing. It wasn't nice at all, because I'd released the pressure too soon. Now, if that had been chicken or pork, I could have actually poisoned the whole family. What's the point? The point is, the letter of 1 Peter is written to people who are under pressure. 
The pressure is building for them. As believers, the society that they're in is becoming slightly more hostile to the Christian movement. It was a newish movement that spread fast and they had glory days early on. Peter saw thousands of people convert and it was this amazing eruption across the known world. But then the societies that these Christians ended up in started to take a dislike towards this Christian movement. And the pressure was starting to build. And it was pressure to, I'm going to use silly cooking analogies, it was the pressure to blend in with the crowd. It was the pressure to fold under the pressure. There was pressure to reduce down the message that they were preaching to the world around them, to simplify it, to oversimplify the message in order to make it a bit more palatable to the people around them. It was to slice up their lives to Christian and secular. So I just live as a secular person, but then I go to my Christian community during the week. I slice up my life. It was the pressure to make mincemeat of opportunities where you're called to serve and love people and you don't. You, you give up on the idea of actually enduring and trying to show charity and hospitality you kind of lock yourselves in your own home. And to butcher the Bible in order to make it fit with society's preferences. Every society has put pressure on Christians to change the word of God and to adapt it. And the pressure was the same back then as it is today. The pressure was building. And the test was whether these Christians would be able to withstand that pressure to sit with it, to live in the pressure without hitting the release valve too soon. What do I mean by that release valve? Well, you can see from this passage, the temptation was to revert back to an old way of life. You can see in the passage it says, as children of obedience, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. So you're, and then later on it says, for you were redeemed from your empty way of life. You've been set free from your previous way of life. The temptation for those Christians was, under this pressure, I can't handle it anymore. I'm going to hit the release valve and go back to an old way of living. An old way of living that was marked by wickedness, deceit. Envy, slander, hypocrisy, these kinds of things. That temptation is true for everyone, isn't it? As the pressure builds to flick the switch far too soon, rather than sitting in the pressure. Rather than seeing what God might be doing in your life, the temptation is to flick the switch, release the pressure, revert back to an old way of life. And Peter is writing to try and prevent that, to encourage them to not hit that switch. And he's doing it in the style of, I think, Ant and Deck. Right. Do people know this program, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here? Some of you do, unfortunately, yeah. There's a new series out, The, great, the Greatest Stars of I'm a Celebrity. It's very good. Um, I'm about to compare the Christian life to I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. The idea in this program is that you withstand trials. There's a number of celebrities, or almost celebrities nowadays, who are, 
they're facing various trials. They have to put their hands in uh, cages that they can't see and there's a snake in there biting at them and they have to grab a star and all these kinds of things. Uh, there are bush tucker trials where you eat things that you really don't want to eat, that kind of stuff. Now, how does this compare to the Christian life? There is, I discovered, an I thought all the money went to charity, naively. I thought all these people were just doing this charity. Turns out they're not. Um, there is a flat appearance fee for going on the show. Even if you go out in the first round, you get the same appearance fee as if you withstood until the final round. Matt Hancock, everyone's favourite person, apparently got £320,000 appearance fee. He did give 3% to charity. Um, you can see I've been reading too many tabloids this week. So there is a flat appearance fee just for turning up just for being on the programme, even if you fail at that first uh, challenge and you don't even put your hand in the hole, you just shout, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, there is a flat appearance for you, walk home happy. It's true in the Christian life. We have an inheritance in heaven simply through believing in God that it says in chapter 1, is protected for you by God. Him and his hounds are standing there protecting your inheritance. Nothing can touch it. No moth or rust can possibly touch eternal life, which is yours, simply through believing in Christ. It's ridiculous that there is a flat appearance fee just for being part of the show, just for being a believer there is eternal life waiting for us. There is paradise waiting for us. Whether you, you just think of that moment at the cross. Jesus is hanging there. There is a thief who's probably lived quite an unruly, bad life, most of his life. And at the last minute says, please receive me into your kingdom, Jesus. And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, Jesus' mother Mary was down at the bottom of the cross. And through her agony and grief, I wonder whether she went, oi! He's just like, I had to hold you for nine months and then I had to raise you as a child and he's getting into paradise just like that. But that's the reality. Simply through believing, whether you go out in the first round or you're there to the end, there is an inheritance guarded for you in heaven through simply believing in Christ. Amen. But there are also rewards for the life that you now Live. This is where in I'm a Celebrity, if you withstand the pressure of the Bush Tucker trial or one of the other, the kangaroo thingy, where you're, you're going through, you're, you're withstanding the pressure of the spiders, the scorpions, everything that's crawling all over you, you get a star, you get out in the right amount of time, you earn rewards or results for your camp. Maybe it's a nice meal, a bar of chocolate, something like that that your camp get to enjoy, everyone else on the show gets to enjoy, and you are received back into your camp with praise, glory, and honour as you have done something for the benefit of others. It says earlier in the passage that Andres preached on last week, it says this to Christians, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, which is more valuable than gold, which though perishable is, in, is refined by fire, 
may result in praise, glory, and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a lot in that, but he's saying, you, for a short time on this earth, if necessary, you will suffer grief and various trials, which proves the character of your faith, and it will result in praise, glory, and honour at the revelation of Christ. So your life has results. Your life can result in praise, glory, and honour. But here's the question. Praise, glory, and honour of whom? Now, obviously, first of all, of God. The life you live can result in more praise, glory, and honour going to God than if you had not lived that life. Last week, we... Uh, well, we're still mourning the death of a beloved friend, Kieran Grogan. And it's uh, just, uh, just family news. There, the information about the um, funeral and the memorial service is out. If you, need, if you would like to attend that, do, do ask. But separately, anyone who knows Kieran knows this. At the revelation of Christ, because of the life that Kieran lived, the praise, glory and honour going to God will be ear-splitting. It will be deafening because of the life that Kieran lived. He invested into so many people. He led worship with such zeal and sincerity. He ministered to people and cared for them in such a way that more people are singing louder than ever before because of the life that he lived. So the praise, glory and honour that goes to God at the end of someone's life can be louder depending on the life that they live. Those are the results of your life. But also, in the ridiculous grace of God, the praise, glory and honour also gets shared with us. At the end of your life, God is looking forward to the moment when he can say, well done, good and faithful servant, for the life that you have lived. The Holy Spirit is loving, transforming you from one degree of glory to another that you would eventually enter into glory and be glorified. And the Bible says, if you look at the stars in the sky, some stars are brighter than others. They shine brighter than others. And so it will be with the sons of God, who shine in different levels of glory. And that's depending on the life that we've lived. And then there is honour. And this is fascinating, but the Apostle Paul spoke to one of the churches. He wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He said to them, You are my crown that I will throw at the feet of Jesus when he returns. What does he mean? Paul had invested his life into into this church. He discipled people. He'd loved them. He'd preached the gospel. He cared for their pastoral needs. He'd been an apostle to them. And they had started to flourish as a church. And they were holding on to this truth no matter what the pressure was on them. And he said, I'm so proud of you. And you're like a crown around my head. That when Jesus arrives, I'm going to throw it at his feet. Now, there is an act of humility there. But there's also an act of pride. Like at the end of this service, I'm expecting my daughter Olive to sprint through those doors with a fresh drawing or painting that she's done in Jumpstart. And to show it to me. With absolute zeal, like happiness on her face of what she's done. That is what Paul's doing when he's throwing his crown at the feet of Jesus. 
because of the life he's lived, because of the people he's invested into, he will get honour for the life that he has chosen to live. So there is a flat appearance fee for every Christian, but there are also results of the life we've lived now, that when Jesus returns, it will result in his praise, glory and honour, but also ours. But we have to take the other side of this coin, which is that there is also potentially negative results from the life that we live. If there can be a positive result from the life that we've lived, then there could also be a negative result. I fed my mum an unpalatable, overly chewy stew. Like I said, I could have poisoned her because of the fact that I released that valve too soon. And it is possible to live a life that poisons people. You think back, the classic example in the Bible is Adam and Eve. They did not withstand the pressure of the snake speaking to them, giving them temptations to give in and take the fruit from the tree. They could not withstand the pressure, so they hit the release valve, they took it, and the impact on humanity is horrific. You move forward to someone like King Saul, he was king of Israel. He started out well. He wanted the best for people. He wanted to glorify God, it seems. But things started to change. And as the pressure built for him, there are moments where he chose to revert back to a sinful way of life, hit the release valve, and the whole nation was split and splintered and people started fighting with one another. And then one of his eventual grandsons, there was a king called King Rehoboam. King Rehoboam was young. He wasn't necessarily so wise. He'd taken over from his father Solomon. He was ruling over these 12 nations. And he realized that something needed to be done about taxes and how how they cared for people in the nation. He listened to the elderly folk and they gave him wise advice. But then he chose to go and listen to the younger folk and they gave him harsh advice. And he believed that that would be the way to go. And in this trying to come up with a good welfare state, he made an awful decision that wasn't considering what God had said, and he split the nation. What I'm saying is, the life we live can poison and have devastating effects. God doesn't just jump in and say, no, 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 you're not making that decision. God can work all things for good, but it doesn't mean that he necessarily stops us poisoning a whole crowd of people. I wonder whether Peter thought back to the moment when he potentially wasted everything. He's been there following Jesus for three years. He's started to be recognised as the leader of the new group that Jesus is going to send around the world and Peter is going to be the leader, the appointed one, who he is going to uh, set over the church, the church at Jerusalem. Peter is going to have great status. Peter has shown moments of zeal. He has experienced radical healing, casting out of demons and all sorts of things. He has walked with Jesus all this time. In moments where there was debates about whether people are going to run away from Jesus when it gets tough, Peter says, I'm not. I'm going to stand with you. I will die with you. But then on the night when Jesus 
was actually now being rounded up to be taken to be crucified, Peter finds himself sitting next to a campfire. Maybe there was a pot on the fire starting to boil slowly. And it starts to bubble a bit louder and one of the servant girls just says offhand comment, hey, weren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you with that guy Jesus? The moment when the pressure is building and the moment, the opportunity for Peter to really prove himself, all of his claims, heading up to that moment, hey, I I will never give in to the pressure. I'm not that kind of a person. Others may do, but I won't. In the moment when the pressure is built, it, all it took was a little a servant girl to ask him a question. And he hit the switch. Reverted to a totally different way of life to the one he claimed to live. He was an absolute hypocrite in that moment. And he spoke words of malice and deceit and slander about this man who'd given him so much over the last three years. And he denied him. He pleaded ignorance. I don't have a clue who that guy is. I'm not part of his group. I'm not with him. The pressure had built so much and Peter poisoned that group in front of him. An opportunity to witness, to be a brave man of God. And instead, how do you feel they were left? Thinking about, what? I'm sure you're... Are you not... The life we live can have that effect, and I wonder whether you're like me. Well, I'm sure you are. That is a massive temptation. Why did Peter plead ignorance? I think because ignorance is bliss. Ignorance, the former ignorance, a life of ignorance, is an easier life to live. It is easier to harbour wicked thoughts about people than to fight against them. It is easier to bend the truth or to avoid saying the whole truth in order to not expose yourself in certain situations. It is far easier to be a hypocrite, to pretend to everyone like you really love prayer, but actually you never pray, to pretend that you act in a certain way or you criticise other people for not acting in a certain way, but actually you're really not like that behind closed doors either. It is much easier to join in with envious conversations at work about a colleague than actually to praise them openly and say, no, I'm really happy for them, how, they, how they're doing, where they're going, the fact that they've gone way above me. It's so easier to just join in with those slanderous comments about people than trying to do your best to bless them with the words that you use, isn't it? It is far easier to live the ignorant life. Ignorance is bliss. And that was the moment that Peter chose. He chose ignorance. And I find that so, so easy as well. And how do you think Peter felt then? After he'd done this, then Jesus rises from the dead. Now, I I don't think there's much in it, but it is interesting that Peter goes back to fishing. But either way, Peter is there fishing. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter is out fishing again. Sees Jesus at the shore, jumps. I wonder whether he was hoping that he could walk on water like he used to be able to, but he couldn't. So he splash into the water, swims back to the shore. 
And there they are, with fish and a campfire. And I wonder what kind of deja vu moment was it bringing back for Peter? Sitting around another campfire. This time Jesus is there at the campfire. He's not being dragged away by soldiers. He's now standing there in front of them. And Jesus calls Peter aside. Come and have a word. What do you think is going through Peter's mind? I've blown him. He's going to step me down. This job's not for you, Peter. It's for, it's for those who actually stayed faithful to me. You've proved yourself a hypocrite. You're definitely not worthy of this role that, I'm, that I'd originally given you. Go and find something else to do. Go back to fishing. You can imagine all of that going through Peter's mind. And then Jesus said, do. Now, what's he about to say? Do better. Do better next time. I'll give you one last chance, but you better, you better really fix up this time. Do better. No. He just says, do you love me? That's what Jesus says to him. Do you love me? Now that's too simple. That's too easy. That's making it far too easy for Peter. He deserves a real test, a real slap, some condemnation for having slipped back into that old way of life. Jesus just says, do you love me? Because he takes him back to basics. And I think that's the key. Because funnily enough, in the passage that we've read, Peter takes us back to basics as well. He doesn't say, be better. He actually says, be yourself. Not in some therapeutic way, but in a way that recognises the power of God in your life. He says this, you are a child of obedience, or as obedient children. Now you could read that wrong, because that top line could sound like Jesus is saying, as goody two-shoes, or as really well-behaved children, or children who've done really well at school. No, he's not saying that. This is the equivalent of saying, as a child of the 60s, or as a child of the 70s. You know, that sort of general term, as a child of obedience. As opposed to what? Well, as opposed to a child of disobedience. The Bible calls all of humanity children of disobedience. We're born in that nature. We are born turned away from God. That's just in our nature. That's the old way of life. Even if you were raised in a Christian household, you were born as a child of disobedience. But thank God you were taught the right stuff from an early age. And hopefully came through to be a child of obedience. But you don't become a child of obedience by behaving really well. It's simply through belief. It says later in the passage, through him you believe in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. It's because of that. So that you have your faith and hope in God. You're a child of obedience. You're a child of God. You're a child of your Father in heaven because you believed. Again, appearance feet. That's all it is. But that is who you are now. It's why deep down inside there is a pang inside of you. When you sin, it bothers you. Even if you're finding it really hard to fight against this sin, it seems to control you so much. You're bothered by it. You want to obey God, 
Honestly, I can tell you, for those who've grown up in Christian families and became Christians early on, I didn't. I was an atheist since I was 20. It did not bother me that I was disobeying God. Trust me. I did not care. I was almost happy about the idea that I'd be upsetting a fake God. That's a child of disobedience. You don't worry about it. A child of obedience, even if you're struggling with sin, feels it. It's just in your nature. So remember that. You're a child of obedience. Then it says, if you call on the name of the Father. Now this is similar to, can you remember the first ever badge you got? A badge that you were proud to wear. It may have been a cub or scout badge. It might have been the school badge that you started to go to. It might have been a sports team badge that you were really proud to have got on the team. It might be a certain letter at like the top of your emails now or the bottom, like the company that you work for. You're quite proud that you're attached to that name. Or those who are medics and you work, you've worked all your life and now you're part of the NHS and you're proud to represent that. Or a soldier representing the nation and representing that uniform. Do you get the idea? Carrying a badge, carrying a name, carrying a reputation that's attached to this organisation. You live in a certain way. And the idea here is, if you call on the name of the Father, if you're representing the Father on earth, if you're bearing the name of God on you, that's going to change your behaviour. Behave with reverence. Behave with respect. Because you carry the name. It's why our prayers should include, hallowed be your name. It brings us into line. We remember who we represent on this earth. But again, you didn't earn that badge. That badge is put on you. You are a child of God and therefore you represent the Father. So that's true of you as well, simply through belief. So you're a child of obedience. You call on the name of the Father. You wear his name on you. You're a Christian. And then it said you're pure. Do you know that? You're pure. You've purified yourselves, not through good behaviour, but by your obedience to truth. Again, simply by believing, you have become pure. And then it says, and I love this, it says, you've purified yourselves through your obedience to truth, so that you can love one another with a sincere brotherly love. So from a pure heart, love one another constantly. And this is the idea. Imagine a, a bride on the wedding day with her wedding dress. You don't go near soup. You don't go near spaghetti bolognese. You don't go near anything that could possibly taint that. If you've got a brand new carpet in your home, you do not allow muddy shoes in your home. A new car, you drive slightly further away from anything so you don't scratch it. You have purified yourselves. You are pure. So don't let yourself get mixed up with mixed motives. When you're loving people, don't allow it to be with selfish ambition attached. Don't corrupt yourself with these slightly dodgy intentions around loving someone. Love from a pure heart because you can. Because you are pure. That's what you are. And then finally, you're born again. You are a new creature, you're a new creation. Therefore, get rid of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. 
Mums of new children spend forever looking at the ingredients on the back of packets to check that their child is not going to be polluted by anything dodgy. You're a new creation. Have that same level of care and attention over things that wickedness and deceit. Oh, it's just a small white lie. Don't let it in your mouth. Don't let that come anywhere near you. These things will pollute you. You're you're a brand new creature. This cycle is all true of you. If you're a Christian, almost whether you like it or not. These things are true. And this is what Peter is doing. I think Peter is taking them back to basics, as Jesus did to him at the beach and said, do you love me? Well, that's the basis of everything. Peter's saying, these things are true of you. If you believe in Christ, these things are true. And this will start to direct the way that you live. And then in the moment when you start to have doubts and you start to think, yeah, but I'm clearly not living this way. I'm clearly finding it harder than other Christians seem to be. Maybe this isn't quite true. I'm not living up to this standard at all. Well, stamp yourself with this final stamp, which is redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Okay? The only reason that any of these things are true of you is not because of your blood, sweat and tears... It's because of Jesus' blood, sweat and tears. He has made you all of these things because he poured out his blood for you. And this is what washes you clean. This is what saves you from your old way of life into a new way of life. This is the key. So when the devil tries to stop you going through that cycle of remembering who you are in Christ, stamp on his head with this truth that no, no, no it's not because of my blood, sweat and tears it's because I'm redeemed by the precious blood of Christ do you think when Peter was there at the fireside and Jesus was breaking bread and passing it around do you think Peter noticed something as he passes out that bread to Peter Peter looks past the piece of bread and sees the scars in Jesus' hands Wonderfully healed scars that now show that he is in an imperishable body, but scars nonetheless that remind Peter of the moment that he essentially he missed because he denied Christ and said, I have nothing to do with him. And then Christ was there bleeding to death, bleeding for Peter, pouring out his blood so that Peter could be restored And brought back to this new life that he's been given. And it's the same for you and I. That blood was poured out for you. And I reckon Peter has flashbacks of Jesus' life there. Under every pressurised moment, Jesus kept going. In the garden, when Jesus feels the excruciating pressure of what's coming up. And he says, God, not my will, but yours be done. In the, in the moments when the pressure builds to just give up on this whole thing. When the pressure builds when your friends are denying you. And you just want to deny the whole thing as well. And go back to normal easy life. Jesus withstood the pressure. He stayed there in the pressure. 
because he knew it was through that that God was going to refine, purify and make good his perfect plans. Jesus stayed in the pressure all the way until the red switch flicked up and he said on the cross, it is finished. And it's a silly slide. It it vaguely reminded me of this moment when Jesus goes into heaven and uh, serves the Father this meal. If we can have the Ratatouille slide, there we go. There's a moment at the end of the film of Ratatouille where this slightly grumpy food critic who's just become disillusioned with food that looks fancy but isn't actually that great finally tastes something that is just perfect and he transforms. Now don't take too many analogies, this isn't a great analogy of the Father in Heaven. Father in heaven is not grumpy and he doesn't change in his moods but there was that moment when Jesus goes into heaven and I think serves up a banquet that every human being has been serving up lukewarm, sour, bitter, poisonous meals that turn people sideways and you cannot eat, you cannot stomach and then God the Father got the taste of true obedience through the life that was lived by his son Jesus Christ. And here's the remarkable thing. That feast is now shared with us. That meal that Jesus cooked under pressure is his own body given for us. He himself was put under the most excruciating pressure until death and then serves that meal up to all those who follow him. And genuinely, this is the experience that we should have in communion. When we take communion together, that is where the Holy Spirit is meeting with us, confirming in our hearts, this is the taste of true obedience. This is the taste of Christ living his life well for you. This is the taste of someone shedding their precious blood for you. This is what it means. This is the experience of our soul. This is the basis upon the life that we're going to live in this new life that we've been given. You don't have to give in to the pressure. You don't have to because that's not you anymore. The pressure that's around you is refining you, it's defining you, and it's making you perfect. But only through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.